Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Right on. So now we're recording. Oh, cool. Hey, you know what? Last last time it was interesting. We were doing Facebook Live. We didn't introduce ourselves, but on Facebook Live, it kind of doesn't say our names. Uh, Oh, it doesn't? I don't know. I guess not. So I'm Craig Morton. Hi, Craig. I'm Cody Stoffer. Hi, Cody. Who's Who's that that's with us? That is... I'll introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Tom, Thomas J. Orr, but please just call me Tom. Tom. And so, Cody, are, did you did you sign up for classes? Are you taking classes with Tom? Yeah, I'm going to break right now, though, because okay, so he's I can't also handle your the load right now. Yes, yeah. Okay, so you got to look good in front of your teacher. <laughs> I always look good. There's no uh, worries. That's yeah. right. He's one of the hottest preachers I'm a, around. I'm one of the hot pastors. It's my burden to bear. Well, that's not, yeah, he is a hot celebrity preacher and he's got to watch out. That's right. Uh, uh, do you want to explain that, Cody, why you think you need to watch out? Uh, well, so I mean, it was quite rec- a thread going on your Facebook page. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, Carl Lentz, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he is. Uh, a pastor in, I believe, New York City. I can't remember the name of the church. I believe but, so. Bethel. But, that's right. Bethel. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, he's famous for having celebrities in his congregation. He's also, you know, I guess people would probably label him a hipster type. You know, he's 37. He wears the tight skinny jeans and the flannels and un- halfway unbuttoned shirt when he's preaching and on instagram sometimes no shirt when he's on there because he's pretty strong and ripped and i will i could admit he's a good looking fella some people say no but he is pretty good looking guy he's fit he's trim he's young anyway uh mostly most famous recently for being justin bieber's pastor is kind of one of his uh, the celebrities in his congregation but even more recently, infamous because he was, it's been discovered he was having an affair with his, on his wife. They've been married for like 19 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yep. So it was caught in personal indiscretion. And so uh, Caitlin Beatty, actually, a friend of mine on uh, social media, she uh, does a lot of religious news dispatches and things like that for Lots of various different Huffington Post, other publications, but uh, she wrote an article about the essentially the problem with hot pastors, or maybe you know maybe it's not just that they're the problem, but you know like you have to keep this image up, and so with it comes in her article, she says hotness is as hotness does, and so that being short phrase for 
essentially you got to keep up the appearances. You got to go with what's hot and cool and trendy. And, and uh, if you're a hot pastor, that includes being a little, you know, embracing that celebratory role, the little narcissism a little bit, that kind of thing. So a little narcissism. I don't know. Sometimes it seems like that's impossible to get a small dose of. <laughs> just, a, just a touch narcissist. <laughs> I'm only kind of the most important person on earth. <laughs> so yeah, that's what's up. And I shared an article about it, just tongue in cheek, you know, Hey, these are the burdens that we have to bear as us hot pastors. We just comes with uh, lots of minefields, you know? So the whole celebrity pastor thing is something that kind of caught me off guard. I really wasn't really thinking that such a thing existed until I started uh, watching or following the Instagram account for preachers and sneakers. <laughs> right. Preachers. Have and you sneakers. seen that? Have you seen that, Tom? Yes. No, oh, that's new for me. So preachers and sneakers, uh, it's a Instagram um, post or uh, feed feed. Yeah. That the, the, the person who writes, it doesn't really make a lot of social commentary on the images that he presents, but he just has these celebrity pastors we're preaching somewhere and then takes a snapshot of what they're wearing. And then he'll go find that same um, ensemble online somewhere and show you what it costs. And it know. started with sneakers because sneakers are like a whole, you know, there's, subculture. A, there's a big culture about sneakers and how much and, you spend on your shoes. And, and these, these preachers wearing, you know, $2,000 Nikes, you know, and uh, you know, wearing, you know, having a, you know, $3,000 sweatshirt, a hoodie, you know, and it's, and it's all trying to look a little bit youthful and urban and all that kind. It's like, wait a second, I can look like a, like a urban scuzz for like five bucks, you know, <laughs> dropping by St. Vincent de Paul and, and nobody would know the better, but it's like, what's going on with our, our sense of value and, you know, how do we put esteem in these individuals? But what's, what's awesome is he really doesn't make a lot of comment on, their apparent excess in the post. He goes into that in his podcast, <clears throat> but it just, he just throws it out there and kind of like, well, what do people think? You know, and, um, most people are not supportive of it. So, Cody, in your celebrity pastor status, um, just just keep going to the thrift store. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say that uh, a lot of those pastors, their defense is. Uh, some of those were gifted to them, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and they're just representing the company or whatever. They'd had no clue that it was <laughs> worth that much, you know, and I know I've heard that. I thought, okay, fine. Then now that, you know, put it on, you know, eBay and then go take care of the, the homeless shelter, you know? Right. I have a sneaking suspicion that Cody's Derby is about $15,000 or so. I know we need to get the preachers and sneakers to take a picture of that thing and see, Hey, what's that hat worth? <laughs> so true story on this i got this uh being a part of a lewiston civic theater production oh that's uh, right yeah and this was part of the the costume i already had a hat i liked this one more so i just swapped them you know so like, you stole one of the props <laughs> i asked theater. <laughs> that's <laughs> right that's rough <laughs> i'm already see i'm already uh, stepping on the mines in the minefield of the hot yeah going down that slippery slope <laughs> yeah man next thing you take a whole backdrop hey where'd you get that backdrop at no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh what were see this is what we mean these conversations they can go anywhere you have no idea yeah so um 
Well, tell us, Tom, what have you been working on? I know Cody had mentioned something earlier about your Thanksgiving uh, yeah. vlog. It's because it's uh, coming up in two days. I want to hear so, about So tell us what you've been up to and, um, and all that. Yeah, what's coming up in two days, Cody? Thanksgiving. <sighs> well, I've been thinking a lot about Thanksgiving for a number of reasons. And one of the biggest ones is that it's been a rotten year in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, when when my family gathers at Thanksgiving, someone gets the the uh, honor or duty or privilege, or I don't know what it is, a curse <laughs> to uh, give a Thanksgiving prayer. And, and me being the kind of person that I am that wants to pray a prayer that I actually believe I've been thinking about what kind of words should I say in light of, you know, how I think about God's love and God's power and that sort of thing. Well, well, that's, that's what everybody does, right? When they say a Thanksgiving prayer. But my hunch is that when you think about Thanksgiving prayer, even though those are similar steps as other people, it may, other people might process, you probably do it differently than I do. I don't usually start off like some people do and, and say some, I don't say, God, thanks for everything from this last year, because <laughs> I don't think God. <laughs> First of all, I wouldn't be honest. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think God wanted or even allowed the pandemic. I don't think God wanted all the political problems, all the sickness, all the economic struggles we've gone through, the Black Lives Matter, the police brutality. I can go on and on and on. And I happen to just have come through a week of uh, having the flu myself, not COVID, mm-hmm. thankfully, but uh, so there's lots and lots of bad things that have happened in the world. And although I'm someone who thinks that God works with the bad to try to squeeze something good out of it, I don't think the bad is somehow a part of this mysterious divine plan that God manipulates or subtly allows or permits because God has some greater purpose. So when it comes to Thanksgiving, I, I want to say, I want to articulate my prayer in a way that gives credit to God for being the source of all that's good, loving, beautiful, excellent, without blaming God for all the crap. Does, does that almost sound like it lets God off the hook, though? Don't, don't you think people would like to go, God, this is your fault. Uh, we've done our part. You haven't held up your end of the bargain. I expected something more out of you. <laughs> yeah, I do think some people think I'm letting God off the hook. And I guess I am if you think that God has the kind of power to control things. But right. since I don't think God has that kind of power, I don't think there's no hook on which God can be let off. But uh <laughs> You know, it is the case that sometimes we do our dead level best and we act in the best ways we can. And so does God and things still go, you know, to hell in a handbasket. And that's because it's not just us who are agents and factors and actors in the world. There are other creatures, other forces. Sometimes those forces are just plain unlucky. Other times people or creatures are just not cooperating with God. At least that's the way I see it. Uh, so how do you so how long is your thanksgiving prayer <laughs> well i i am a person who likes short prayers okay. so uh, <laughs> um i yes, i yes. decided i was going to be a person who prayed short at meals when i was a kid and we were at church potlucks and our pastor would pray on and on and i thought this sucks i'm not gonna <laughs> do this <laughs> so I, I give short prayers so a required reading list before the prayer might be helpful for people to know where you're going, I guess. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, about the, about the prayer thing, years ago, um, 
my wife, Carla, and I, we both had different opportunities to be around Richard Foster a lot. Uh, for me, it was uh, when I was working with Ron Sider and then developed a friendship with Richard. And then Carla took her master's program at Friends University while he was teaching there and got, yeah. she got to know him as well. So I can't remember if she was told this or if Richard mentioned it to me or how we figured it out. But he had this statement, he said, when it comes to public prayers, one minute they're praying with you, uh, two minutes um, they're praying for you. And at three minutes, they're praying against you. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, keep it short. A three-minute prayer, I can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need to hang around some evangelical circles a little bit more. <laughs> ain't, so. got, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> I mean, you got to spend at least one minute saying just and Lord, you know. those <laughs> <laughs> Lord, just, oh, just thank you, Lord. <laughs> Yeah, actually, yeah. in general, you know, I, I've praying for me is is a theological adventure because I I have been groomed in certain ways growing up. I've heard prayers that have been kind of programmed in my head, language, not just the just Lord and right. that sort of thing, but just phrases that now when I hear them, I don't quite like them all that well. And so every time I pray, it's kind of like a little adventure, like how can I articulate what I think and believe in a way that makes sense to me and others, but also is a real prayer. And so um, sometimes it's frustrating, but most of the time it's kind of invigorating to try to express my theology. Can, hmm. can you think of a, for instance, like that, where, you've, where there's maybe a familiar phrase or something that, you know, Christians use a lot and then prayer, you've got to. Yeah, well, this this is very common. If someone's sick, we'll say something like this. God, we pray for Jim and his cancer. Well, what are you actually saying when we pray for Jim and his cancer? I mean, you're saying we're we're praying that we're praying. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, really what's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is the content of that prayer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I like to, like, let's say it's an illness or something. I like to say in my prayers, uh, express what I believe God is up to. I like to say things like, God, we believe you're already present and working to try to heal Jim. And we're here to commit ourselves to work with you. Give us insights. Give us wisdom on how we might be your co-laborers or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's a work in progress. My prayers are a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> that so, sounds about right, though. I think prayer is a huge piece of this. Uh, you know, just I think when our church first read... Um, Oh, your book, three or four books ago. Uh, Uncontrolling Love of God. Thank or... you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to remember the, the titles, but yeah. yeah, I forget them too. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, one of the main questions that came up was like, well, what does this do to prayer? Yeah. And I think part of the thing is there's a, at least for myself, I've, I've struggled in prayer to have the right formula. It's like, I've got to say things right or have the right uh, disposition or mood or, or whatever to, to kind of like break through that veil. Like there's some kind of key or some code. And then once on the other side, it's like, now what do I do if I'm face to face with God? Do I, do I, who do I speak for? How do I speak? And what do I anticipate hearing and all that kind of stuff. And it, it seems like after uh, our folks and I've heard it from others, once they got done with that book, they kind of like this, I don't know what to do with prayer now. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which on the one side, doesn't make any sense at all because i think as the um 
this uh, we started using the phrase in our in our worship time for the uh, for our congregational prayer. We call it um, what do we call it? Uh, um, it just slipped my mind. Anyway, we we speak. We're not. We're we're trying to co-labor with God here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we are we are working together with God here. Uh, and it's it's both of us in this dialogue or conversation rather than me trying to find the secret to put it all there and then get the magic. It's like it's not Indiana Jones going into the tomb, grabbing the thing and running out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm all for the notion that when we pray, we're trying to at least part of our prayer and prayer has many facets. But one part of it is we're trying to express our deepest desires, our emotions, our joys or frustrations or anger, uh, you know, and I'm all on board with God being able to handle that. But um, I also think that once you have a view of God being uncontrolling, then it kind of changes the way you think about God's role in, in relation to what you're angry or frustrated about. Uh, last Sunday, um, my pastor, Sarah Riley, was preaching from the Psalms. And the one particular Psalm that is blasting God and blaming God for all the bad things. And it's a, it's a lament. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and her point was, and I agree with it, that, that uh, you know, God can handle our frustrations and et cetera. But, it's also true that if you don't think God could have stopped the crap that you went through, that God didn't cause it or even permit it, then it feels kind of weird, you know, cussing out God for failing to prevent the bad things if God didn't have the capacity to prevent them in the first place. And so that's kind of another step in that prayer process. I think a lot of people haven't quite moved. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, I, I, I deal with that. I've been teaching now for, I think, three semesters, uh, intro to philosophy class. And always we have these, you know, classic proofs of the existence of God. And they, they often revolve around these expectations of God to be able to do anything and everything. Right. Without any sense of God can't. Yep. And it's really hard to communicate in philosophical terms exclusively at a level that intro to philosophy students will understand when their background is kind of a, is not a kenotic kind of Christendom. No, no. I mean, the popular culture, you know, my favorite example of this is when popular culture wants to do a movie about God, they call it Bruce Almighty, not Bruce all loving or Bruce omnipresent. Mm -hmm. It's Bruce Almighty because in the, the default view for most people is that God must be able to do anything if God is truly God. Right. I, and thought about that. That's a really good one, which is interesting to think about that movie because that's where he comes out kind of in the end is more of the all loving rather than the almighty. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you think you can handle this? And he has got to balance every bit of, you know, input from everywhere. And um, I will say as a, as a pastor, the challenge is when people come to you with problems and things like that. And if you you know, you know that they're coming with this view of God, like, hey, if I just pray for this, this is going to happen. God can make this happen. God can, I mean, even, even you almost have this idea they're rooted uh, somewhere in their psyche is this idea that even God can even change the past, you know, like, mm. uh, uh, and how they're approaching things or whatever is going on, like in cancer, like, oh, just reverse this thing or whatever. And, and <laughs> to balance that with, you know, when you're praying for them and knowing that's their idea, but also, you know, like, Hey, let's be in the moment. Let's, 
Yeah, it it's, can almost come across. In fact, I've even, I suspect I've lost a few congregants because in the moment they they wanted God just do away with this thing completely right now, you know, kind of thing. And I, I couldn't give them that, you know, yeah. like it wasn't in my, yeah. it wasn't in my toolbox at the time. So, well, even if a person doesn't go with me and say that God's love is uncontrolling, so God simply can't single-handedly fix things. Even if you sort of set my view aside and you just kind of take an empirical approach to prayer if you've been around long enough, you know that your prayers for God to fix things are not always, quote, answered in the way you want them. And so to think that God is just going to up and do it in this next time when all the past times, and not all, but many of the past times it hasn't happened, then you just have, you're unrealistic. Uh, you, if you're going to be an empiricist, you have to say prayer is only sometimes effective. Mm. Well, that, and that brings in to me, for me, like a, a confirmation bias issue. Mm, yeah where I pray to God, do this, and the, the um, expected answer or the hoped for response does not come, but some other events take place in, in, in life. And I look at those as kind of a roundabout way that God actually did answer the prayer, but in unexpected ways. And, you know, did God answer the prayer or did God do something else? Yeah, but but with my confirmation bias, it was God. God did that. God was responding to my prayer, and that can feel. Um, you, you mentioned you know kind of empirical. You know, it's like and, and to me, the empirical measures are hard to find, uh, but we will try to say it's empirical, but it's just our confirmation biases wanting yeah. to find that. I've got a good example of this. I know someone who uh, had a very swollen leg and this person believes in the power of miracles and uh, went to their church. They prayed for the leg. I contacted them uh, about four days later and this person's partner said to me, oh, I'm, you know, the leg is still swollen. I talked to the person and the person says, praise God. It's a miracle. It's not as swollen as it used to be. (laughs) (laughs) So the one person looked at it and said, nope, it's not all healed yet. So it's not a miracle. The other person says it's it's not as bad as it was. So it is a miracle. (laughs) And I think, okay, there's some subjective biases that go in here as well. (laughs) And okay. So then how does God use that nature of ourselves to go seeking and searching to find some meaning yeah. In all these things. How does that, how does that, how does God use that to move us closer to God rather yeah. than driving us away? Um, I think uh, using, so in my opinion, taking Tom's example, right? So the person who's uh, had the view, like it's not quite as swollen as it used to be. You could start to see if that person were to sit and maybe really think through the implications of what has happened, it's their body is starting to maybe respond to the call of, of God. Maybe God is, you know, okay, let's coax the good out of this and the body's responding to, to right. that, you know, and if God is in all, through all, you know, with all, it's not like God is coming into that moment. It's God is working with that body, coaxing yeah. the good out of it. So the term we use for a congregational prayer that had escaped me was co-conspiring with God. Nice. Oh, I mean, that's what we use instead of congregational prayer. Yeah. yeah, And so in the example. So that person whose leg was maybe getting better, maybe they were co-conspiring with God to elevate, uh, you know, 
let's see, uh, rice, rest, yeah, right. ice, uh, compress, and elevate. <laughs> <laughs> they were starting taking it seriously. I put yeah. it in God's hands, so I better start taking it seriously. There too. you go. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Yep. That's good. So did God answer that prayer? <laughs> <laughs> that's the good question eventually the leg went went down uh, the question it took it as long as you might think a swollen leg takes yeah. to become unswollen is that a miracle well yeah. in my view miracles uh some people think all of life is a miracle i'm not in that camp because i don't think rape is a miracle so i think miracles are good and unusual events so if there's a leg that's swollen and it decreases over time at an expected rate. I think God was a part of that, but I wouldn't put it in the miracle category because it's not unexpected. Right. So the word unexpected though, inevitably in injects some kind of subjective basis. That is what do you expect and not There's expect. a range of probability and expectation. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when I've been, I've had the flu the last week. And so I've been taking all kinds of Advil and I notice when I take four Advil, I feel much better. <laughs> I don't, I don't think of it as a, a miracle, miracle. Yeah. but I suspect that if, you know, I had, let's say an exchange student from the Amazon who'd never seen, never been exposed to Advil and I'd given them four Advil, they might call it a miracle because it would be not what they expected at that moment. Now is God not part of it then, or if for me and for them, no, I think God's a part of all of the healing. It's just part of it has to do with our expectations. Yeah. Mm. You know, but that makes me think about what about the discovery, uh, unexpected discovery of things that help. Uh, like, I'm not saying Advil was a big discovery. I don't know the ins and outs of it. But, you know, like, uh, how about the development of this uh, the vaccine so far with COVID-19? Is there some miracles going on there? Or is it just warp speed? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know the details well enough. I, uh, from... What I know, there are three vaccines now that uh, have been shown to be effective, and they've been produced by scientists, I think, working with God, using their abilities the best they know how. Now, is it faster than what anyone expected, and therefore it's a miracle? I don't know the field well enough to make that kind of a move. But maybe if you know we're talking with Francis Collins, who's the Nash, director of the National Institutes of Health, he might use the word miracle because it's quicker than he thought. And <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was so cool that he's uh, a part of, uh, like he's the head of kind of the head of all this, really. Like, but I like how it's so quiet behind the scenes and unassuming. It's so cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, in contrast to other. Other other people <laughs> who take credit for just about everything that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some we, like we were saying much earlier, just a little bit, just a little bit of narcissism. Yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a touch, just a twinge, yeah. a twinge of narcissism. You know, that's. Huh. There's all kinds <laughs> of different directions I'm thinking of, but. One of the things I think we wanted to, another direction, might pick this one up later, but wanted to, we, we had done this two years ago with, with Tom. We talked about Advent. And so this is our traditional pre-Advent conversation with Tom. Yeah, we do this every time <laughs> once before. What do we, <laughs> we don't call it bi, is it not biannual? What is it called when it skips the year? No, but. Oh. I guess it's biannual. No, would it be biannual? Biannual, biannual is like twice a year, right? 
I no. thought semi-annual was more than know. once. We'll just call it the advent after every U.S. election cycle, every tweet. <laughs> That's true. It would, have, it would have been after the 2018, would it? Yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> well, that kind of goes hand in hand because of what we believe about advent and especially the apocalyptic uh, passages. You know, most people think apop- apocalyptic is destruction ending, which some people might feel after an election. But we take more of a, it's an unveiling, which also, uh, you learn a lot about our country and what's going on through the elections too. So you pull back the veil. (laughs) You pull back the veil of what's going on. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've actually been thinking about, I'm supposed to preach, not this Sunday, but the, the, I guess it's the 6th of November, the second week of Advent. And uh, that'd be December, but yeah. 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 My text is uh, Mark and... Mm -hmm. For those who are listening and part of this conversation, you might remember that Mark doesn't really have a traditional Christmas story. I mean, it just starts off with John the Baptist. And actually, it's kind of weird because it quotes, I believe it's the Psalms. Uh, Anyway, some Old Testament passage that is supposed to be evidence for this John the Baptist. And then next thing you know, Jesus there, we're off and running. There's no, you know, Mary, no Joseph, no angels, no shepherds, no wise men. It's just, boom, Jesus is up doing wild and wonderful things. Well, Um, it's like, but it it uses the imagery, does it not of the, I was thinking more of the um, day of the Lord. I mean, it's this eschatological event, this boom, moving to the end time without any lead in. Yeah, yeah, it's very abrupt. It has a really uh, line that has always kind of given me, made me feel kind of weird. It's that Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit. Mm. Uh, And um, that's always made me feel weird because I don't know what that means. There's definitely been a part of the Christian tradition who's gone particular directions with understanding what that's all about. But at the least, it seems to mean that, that Jesus is doing something dramatic that's good. Jesus is, you know, healing the sick, casting out demons, doing all this excellent stuff. And at least for me, at this time of year, as I think about Christmas, sometimes the whole Christmas story and uh, all the things that go around celebrating the holidays, the manger and all that tradition, sometimes that's a little burdensome for me. Sometimes I, I wanted Jesus to come in, kick some butt and do some good. And, you know, let's, let's get moving here. And, and that's, that's kind of my, I think that's Mark's Jesus. That's Jesus Mark's, is, yeah. Okay. You know. So are you familiar with the Saturday Night Live uh, episode or the, the skit Jesus Unchained? No, what is it? Un- I don't think Jesus comes back after the resurrection to get even with everybody who tried to take him down. (laughs) Unleashed or something. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. But it's it's a riff on the movie. Oh, yeah. Jesus Unchained or Jesus. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, he's uh, he's taking names and whatever. We like our our, uh, our revenge stories don't we? i mean you know well, but does it need to be that way though also does it have to be vengeful and violent can it be like boom let's get some work done no i yeah i don't think the mark's account of jesus is a violent jesus right. but it is um oh what's the right word uh it's remarkable it's something's happening that just moves you in powerful ways right um and i'm all for power used in, in the expression of love yeah 
Mm. So in the traditional, um, well, I don't even know. We've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with so many people. We have our designated Sundays, like the first Sunday is hope, the second Sunday is peace, the third Sunday is maybe love. It, it, it's there is um, no there is no real set yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah. you got joy and love in there yeah. somewhere and they they flip flop hope and peace joy and love and, yeah and they do and but yeah. faith people are adding faith as one now drop yeah line. and yeah, I, yeah. but i think you know as i tried to look i think the predominance you know move towards this idea of of the second week is peace mm. and so jesus shows up boom let's get to work um is there a peace message in that I think there is, but I don't think of peace as necessarily the absence of conflict. I think of peace as the promotion of well-being or the, the Hebrew word shalom. Mm -hmm. That's what I think peace is fundamentally about, establishing well-being in all dimensions throughout creation. Yeah. And that can mean, obviously, the end of conflict in some ways, but it's more importantly thinking about uh, what's good for a creation top to bottom. You know, and one of those, that, that, that idea that, you know, that it's not the absence of conflict, but it's also the meaningful movement through conflict. So I remember yes, conversations nice. under the previous uh, presidential administration that race relations got worse under Obama. Yeah, I've, I've heard that go by. <laughs> but there was also a critique lifted against the civil rights movement, that they just made matters worse between, mm. you know, uh, black people and white people there just wouldn't be racism if you stopped talking about it exactly yeah <laughs> Reminds like, me yeah, of, but uh... is there a need to raise consciousness to the to a certain level to actually create conflict to move toward meaningful resolution <laughs> reminds me of a panel i was on back in boston about 15 years ago on uh, martin luther king day and and I was the third panelist and I was the only uh, white person on the panel. And they got to me and I began my, my, my uh, presentation by saying, Martin Luther King was one of the most violent men in U.S. history. <laughs> <laughs> and then I talked about how his call for change meant a kind of violence to yep. the order, yep. kind yep. of upsetting of the way things are in the institutions. Um, and obviously violence can be defined in different kinds of ways. But uh, yeah, sometimes there is some unsettling that needs to be done in order for well-being to be uh, dispersed. Yeah. And there's a, I, I think the FBI actually, they may not have been public about this, but I've read reports that they put him as almost pub like, for lack of a better word, public enemy number one, um, the most dangerous man in America because of what, not because of his violence, but because of what it meant for the status quo. If Right. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that preaching on the second week of Advent, then you look at Jesus, you know, Prince of Peace, um, you know, the, the essence of God's love in many ways, you know, in very physical form. And for Mark, how's the story end? You know, especially if you end with Mark 16, 8, it ends with fear. Right. Yep. <laughs> um, I've always liked the shorter ending of Mark just because it leaves you hanging on this cliff wondering what's coming, what's happening. I love it. It's good. Yeah. Or it makes me, me think of uh, in um, uh, the oh, uh, blah, 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 blah. Chronicles of Narnia, right? He's, he's not a safe lion, but he's good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, titling my sermon for that uh, Sunday all I've got is a red guitar, three chords, and the truth. And the truth. Wow. <laughs> Who said that? 
who I said think that? Dylan first said it, but okay. you too was the one who made it uh, that I became yeah. aware of. Yeah. Uh, but the kind of the stripped down, you know, this is what it's all about kind of nativity or um, a Christmas story, Advent story. Yeah. Mm, I like that. Ooh, Interesting. That's good. Three chords and the truth. So do you, are you going to pick up on the prophetic texts? Cause I, I'd love the, the tradition that the prophetic texts bring in the lectionary. No, uh, tell, I hadn't really thought much about it. Give me yeah. some hints. I'll steal from well, you. Well, no, I don't know if there's any hints. But, you know, I think that the lectionary passage for that week is Isaiah 40, you know, comfort, oh, yeah, comfort my people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, which has so many Advent uh, hymns. I think, um, or at least at a least voice cries out in the wilderness, yeah. prepare the way of the Lord. It just, mm. it has, a, it echoes. It's this, it's this longing and that compa- this, this cry for compassion will not go unheeded. You know, God yep. will act. Yeah. Uh, the Every valley <laughs> shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. Yeah, preach it brother. Mm-hmm. And, but, and then the week before, I really love the week before, is, is it Isaiah 64, 60, yeah, 64, something? one through nine. Yep. Yeah. It's like tear open the heavens. God, come tear. on down. You know, we mm-hmm. want you here. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because I mean, that does feel like what Mark does. It's like just rips things open. Boom. He's there. But the other thing that I love about that Isaiah passage, I was reading it a couple of weeks ago. You go into it with this, like, yeah, God, come on. We want you. And then as soon as God's there, God goes, you know, you really haven't been doing your part. <laughs> you, sure you, like, you sure you want yeah. me? Are you, you sure, sure you want me here? here? <laughs> it's, it really goes into that idea that, yeah, to get the peace, you got to go through the rough stuff. Mm. Oh, you know what? I do, oh, man, here's the theme, right? Like, okay, you want me here. Guess what? I am here. It's just that you're not here, you know, in that sense. You That's know? kind of it. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, <laughs> turns out it's not you. It's me after all. Huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, no, it's you, not me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Go. I like it. Oh, I just made an entire Advent series. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So I really, I really do like those prophetic texts and it's an interesting, I think it's a great spot in the lectionary because the lectionary will you know, frequently do a continuous Old Testament reading, you know, go through Genesis, goes through, I think just recently it went through, was it Joshua or Judges, you know, it's yeah, like, judges. Mm-hmm. it's like, I'm not going to preach through Judges. I just don't want to be dripping in blood. Um, <laughs> but you don't want to be telling someday. people that you don't want to be telling people that Samson's not such a great guy after all. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to go genocide. Yay. That's on our side, you know. That's a rough one to preach. I got to, maybe I should work on that challenge. But you know, once it gets to the Advent season, it picks up these prophetic longings, mm. and I think it's just a. It's I, I like seeing that, um, and it comes right after Christ the King Sunday or the Reign of Christ Sunday, which I think is such a great segue, especially this last one because it was Matthew twenty-five, the separation of the sheep to the goats, and the you got the Ezekiel passage. Was it? Yep. About the the shepherd who abuses the sheep and takes advantage of their of them and and then you jump into these isaiah i mean these uh, advent passages and you get this idea of what a good shepherd looks like and uh longing for you know somebody to come and tend that flock it's anyway it's it's there's a lot of richness in the prophetic text yes Um, so true well you're talking about the longing there uh i don't know if this is a good time to mention our my music selection that i sent you but uh david bazan who is uh front man for pedro the lion and he uh, released a Christmas album in 2016, and his song was called All I Want for Christmas. And uh, it's not what you're thinking. It's not Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas. 
It's literally, these are the entire, it's a three and a half minute song, but the, all, the whole, the entirety of the lyrics are peace on earth, goodwill to men is what they said you'd bring us. And peace on earth, goodwill to men is all I want for Christmas. And it's just that for, you know, like lamenting longingly interspersed throughout the music. It's nice. Did you, do you want me to play a little bit of that? Sure. How, how far into it? Uh, you know, I don't know. Just go. All right. <laughs> hopefully we might not. Hopefully we don't get taken down on Facebook Live. Oh, I know. Maybe, maybe we better not. We'll find out what the copyright is. Okay. <laughs> You got playing? You hearing it? I don't hear it. Uh, I, wonder if, I wonder if Facebook blocks it. Uh, okay. Everyone go listen to David B-A-Z-A-N. All I want for Christmas. Solid. There you go. Actually, all his stuff. He's a really interesting guy because uh, he... Um, he won a claim early on in, in their career, Pedro the Lion, for, you know, like with evangelicals, lots of stuff like this. And as soon as they got their, um, their following, he started to call out Christian, Christians for, uh, especially evangelical Christians, for um, falling for authoritarianism. And boy, they dropped him quick. As a, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, I just changed the setting, so maybe it'll play. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. There we go. There it goes. music that has happy children in the background with blue sad chords <laughs> playing up front it's always so um touching <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know the story on that. If that's recording of him when he was a kid, or if it's his own kids, I I've have I haven't looked into that. But yeah, that's. Well, I think that's one of those interesting things. I I posted on Facebook a couple of days. I guess it was just yesterday. I was like, "Hey, does anybody want to do a combined worship service for Blue Christmas, which is you know the longest night and." And my first, the first response, a bunch of people were like, oh, you mean like Elvis and like joking around with it. I was getting a lot of like comments on this post about a joke. And it's like, no, no, I mean, seriously, we want to deal with some of these harsh realities coming up against the, the beautiful right. truth and how sometimes that leaves some of us cold, you know, and, mm -hmm. and struggling. Yep. And so I had to pull that post down, re-articulate the question, and yeah, nobody responded. Is it the, <laughs> was it, did you change it to be the longest night rather than... I included Christmas? that, plus a little description about what it means, you know, oh, okay. all that kind of stuff, with, a, with an article from uh, United Methodist Church. They have a nice, yeah. a nice uh, page on it, resources on that. Yeah. But, mm. uh, yeah, it was funny. Uh, as a joke, got plenty of response. As a serious thing, mm. nope. <laughs> Went uh -uh. dead. Well, yeah, so the, we have in the two congregations, this is why I, I want to ask first, uh, because I'm interested, but I am working with another person. And in the two congregations this last year in particular, we've lost uh, in each congregation, someone pretty important in each congregation. So I'm not, you know, we may yeah. have may yeah. want to do a closed. Right, right. More personal and intimate. Yeah, but yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I think this last year, though, I mean, 2020 has, mm. even if you're not a person like myself who's oriented toward depression, there's a plenty to get depressed about. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of things that just didn't work out. Um, school didn't work out. Uh, athletics didn't work out. Workplace didn't work out. Mm. Church replanting strategies didn't work out. Uh, yeah, it's just me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I just uh, talked with my parents a few days ago, and we were holding off as long as possible to decide whether or not they were going to come for Thanksgiving. And ultimately, yep, nope, we're not. Yeah. They're not coming. So, you know, just, yeah, even small things like that. I mean, small, but, you know. <sighs> yeah, it just seems like a big, long string series of sad news. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of, well, it's important to grieve. Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's, you know, even if others might judge it as minor. Um, well, like, oh, that's nothing to get upset about. My life's been so much worse. So there's other people who have worse lives. I don't uh, think that's really can be the, you can't really compare it. Right. In the moment, what does that, so I, early on, if you can remember way back when the pandemic started and it, um, like three or four years ago, was it? <laughs> yeah, it feels like it, 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, March but, itself had six weeks, I think. And then yeah, right. Up to 10 weeks. So, so as they were canceling, um, a lot of moments, especially for the senior class, right? Their graduations and things like that. And of course they were grieving that and they should, but I can remember people talking and commenting and posting and like, ah, you know, who didn't, you know, who didn't have a graduation, people who were drafted into the Vietnam War and had to leave before the graduation. They didn't. And, and what's funny is I noticed not a single person who had that happen to them. They weren't the ones making those comments. Right. In fact, I guarantee they were like, oh, no, I get it. I understand completely what they're yeah. 
going through yeah. they should they, there is some loss and grief and you should grieve it yeah i'm yeah. with you yeah yeah me too well what one another topic tom that i wanted to ask you about or we could talk about and I, to me in, in my head it fits with this idea of grief <laughs> and, and darkness and 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 blue christmas and longest night you had a series of photos a few weeks ago of an abandoned farmstead out mm. in the middle of the desert weathered and torn and beaten Mm-hmm. And I looked at that, that initially that image was just so evocative, I think, of how some people feel this year at this mm. time. And, and one of the things I thought was really poetic was in this home, somebody in the middle of nowhere, I don't even know where you <laughs> were, you don't need to pinpoint it on a map, but um, they had a piano. They brought a thing of beauty and joy and share, you know, something to build community and, and gather around into this barren place. And, you know, it's it just had this whole incredibly kind of um, adventuresome, but romantic kind of uh, sentimental and beauty and if devastation. You let me, if you make me a co-host, I'll share my screen and show the folks a photo of that at piano. Can you do that? Let me, yeah, I think I can share screen with you. I put it on multiple. There we go. Yeah. You got it? You guys seeing it? Try that again. Did it not go through? Yeah, I see it. I see it. Great. Yep. There it is. Yeah, this was uh, out in the middle of the Owyhees. Um, Those of you who are listening to this, the the Owyhees are an area of southwest Idaho, northwest Nevada, Southeast Oregon and Northeast Idaho. Um, I mean, California, sorry. Uh, and this particular homestead was way off the beaten path. I had to hike into it. Uh, it was uh, actually, I've got a picture of the house that it's in. You could see that this was uh, these, um, these uh, homesteaders had been there for several generations. Mm. And uh, this is the house as I walked up to it. This was like the newest version <laughs> of the place. But uh, some of the other older versions, I'll quickly go to them. Uh, it, just just to, to let you know, it's not coming across on Facebook Live. It's not. Okay. Well, yeah. So, all right. Well, well it, it, then, we, uh, we might be behind though. No, I'm looking at it. It's just oh, a blank okay. screen of my... Okay, well, I'll stop sharing and just say that, uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty neat to see that uh, that old piano there, uh, off in the uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, I'm gonna stop sharing here, or can I? Are you guys getting me now instead of the my screen? Or are you getting my screen? Well, actually, nothing's changed on my side. Okay. Okay. There we go. There we go. Uh, so the hopes and dreams of homesteaders, the struggle that they must have gone through to get that big old piano out in the middle of, you know, I don't know how they got it there. It must have probably on a wagon, but mm-hmm. it's super rocky area. So it had to go very slow, I'm sure. Uh, and then after being there for quite some time, given the fact that there's a log cabin there and a rock house there that I suspect were the first homes built then to have to abandon the place and decide it's not worth it to take that piano out (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
What and, was that uh, feeling like? We brought it here. It's not moving. <laughs> it ain't moving. Yeah. 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 Yep. yeah. Uh, I suspect they were especially down on their luck when they're leaving the place and maybe don't have all the, uh, the kind of resources they had when they first started. But um, uh. it's a, it's a mix of, it's a mix of sadness and beauty, you know, um, yep. you see something like that and the craftsmanship and, and the fact that now, you know, there's birds pooped all over it and it's <laughs> fallen apart and there are cows that have rubbed against it. And yet it still kind of reminds you of uh, something that was good in the past that still, still can tell you something positive about the present, despite the dilapidated state in which it, it rests. Mm-hmm. There's there's a there's um yeah there's definitely uh, a whole uh, kind of a spirituality that can mm. unfold from those images and those experiences of seeing these things mm-hmm. and the 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 dilapidation along with the at, at the attempt for beauty mm-hmm. you know and and having that moment to just see that you kind of it's like a it's like telescoping into the past, telescoping into the past, and you see the intention, you see what's what's before you. Um, you know, it's I've been thinking about the pandemic, and maybe this connects with the the piano. Um, it's really tempting for me to think I can't wait until we go back to the time in which there's you know, not all this lockdown, not the quarantining, that the pandemic isn't the threat. I can't wait to get back to the way it used to be. Mm. But I think a a more realistic, a more hopeful maybe even, is to say we're never going back. The future can be good. The future can have some elements that were like the past, but um, the future is going to be different. And if we're going to be honest about things and, and face life squarely, um, we have to move ahead, look for what God's doing and how we might cooperate in it. Um, but to be sort of sentimental for the past as if we're going to reclaim it, I think that's just not the way yeah. the world works. Otherwise, we're kicking and screaming into the future. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I, uh, I've had fun thinking about that word normalcy that gets thrown around. Mm. And remember, it was a high school history teacher who said normalcy isn't really a real word. <laughs> it's it's a word that comes from i remember he was a i can't remember why why he went on this tangent and i don't remember why i don't know why this thing stuck in my head but normalcy is not a real word it comes from geometry to describe a perpendicular line that's perpendicular to a plane or something like that and it's a measure of normalcy and he said it came up from uh harding i think it was in his presidential uh bid in the late teens when they wanted to get out of this terrible experience that they had just come through, which was world war one. And the, and so he won the presidency on this claim of trying to come to normalcy. And then what ended up coming as a sequence of historical events after that normalcy arrived was um, incredible separation between the rich and the poor. Mm. Uh, Devastating, uh, laws that even made the lack of civil rights even worse in the south and the rise of the kkk and the flourishing of that mm-hmm. the emergence of large gangs you know uh, in the 20s the roaring 20s which and then the the uh, giving over of lands 
for drilling and for oil and coal production to major companies. And then the depression, you know, it's like <laughs> this effort for the, for normal just was devastating. Yeah. And so it almost makes it prophetic when, when FDR comes along and says a new deal, mm, <laughs> Yeah. you know, I and know. Um, that, that whole aim for getting back to normal once it's done is it's hard to pastorally speak to the grief of the people who have lost and really wish they could reclaim pieces of that past mm. and to say there is a new and beautiful future um, that things are moving toward. It won't be like the past. And we, we say that at funerals all the time. I wonder if we need to have a funeral service for the year 2020. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I think 20- of, so I'm the, what I'm latching onto here is this idea of like um, the piano says to me, Okay, we've left the past, we've moved on, but here's a small thing. Here's something we bring with us that is good, that remains, that we hold on to. But even that, eventually, you know, it had its season two and it got left behind at another point too. So it's almost like this cycle of like um, clearing out and holding on to what remains that's good and true and beautiful. And even that at some point might perish and move on. It reminds me of like uh, the lyric from... uh, the greatest showman there's a song from now on and i think it goes something like uh a man learns what's there for him when everything gets uh when the walls won't hold uh and from the rubble what remains that's what's true because if all was lost uh there's more that i gain because what's left is what's true basically you know Mm, that's good i think we we err if we side on one of two extremes one extreme says we can get back to normal and the past is what was all at. And the other thing says though, that the future has nothing to do with the past. Mm-hmm. That the future erases the past. I'm against that as well. There's always a movement in which we draw from or in, impacted by or influenced by the past. And then we have certain decisions and what we want to make in light of that and how we want to move into the future based on that past. And um, I think, that avoids both uh, we might call hardcore conservatism and hardcore progressivism. There's, there's something true about both and we need to figure out how to make that good as we move into a future. Mm. You know, in some ways it makes me think of different uh, depictions of what comes after the, the eschaton, you know, after Jesus shows up and kind of goes back to an Advent theme, you know, you know, what, what is the, what is the end all? What's the, what, what happens at the end? I mean, I remember hearing um, things about, uh, you know, when people die and they go to heaven and, you know, have all these experiences and they come back to tell everybody about these ethereal places where uh, sense of time is all out of whack because there is no past, present and future and everything's gleaming and otherworldly, which is this idea that in the future, nothing's going to be the same (laughs) almost. And then on the other hand, we have the prophetic visions of um you know the, the 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 peaceful kingdom of you know livestock and wild beasts things that we're very familiar with especially in an ag- ag- agrarian culture you know for those folks all working in harmony but in a eden like kind of a thing which is all the way over on the other end at the very beginning mm. and and i guess the i mean those those visions don't really touch each other well you know, so how do we proclaim or share what the anticipated future is 
if it's not otherworldly. I don't know. I just I'm thinking about some of those pieces seem to be moving in some of the way we ways we think about heaven or the what what comes next or what happens you know after the day of the Lord and um, hmm. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just thinking about those different <laughs> visions that don't blend together. Yeah, right? well, I mean, this coming Sunday is typically the Sunday when we talk about the return of Jesus. Uh, strangely enough, Advent doesn't begin with the announcement of Jesus uh, coming the first time. It begins with yeah. the response of Jesus coming again. Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. And for me, this has really been a problematic theme because I used to take it so literally. You know, I was uh, raised with the rapture theology and I wanted to look up in the sky and see Jesus arms out like Superman coming through the clouds and and maybe angels and horses and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't have that kind of view of eschatology that I once had, in part because, you know, I take science really seriously. And there's apparently something like 400 billion universes. And it's <laughs> hard for me to imagine a guy who's approximately 5'10 flying through all those universes back <laughs> to Earth. Um, but what I, what I do take seriously is the notion that eschatology can mean the real interruption in the sense of new thing that God is doing right here and right now. I think God's already present. So mm -hmm. it's not like God's coming in from the outside, but when something new is presented before us in our particular time and place that God is calling us to this something better, and it takes all kinds of different forms. That's the kind of eschatology I'm totally on board with. And I can start the Advent season with that eschatological vision and I'm, I'm hopeful because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jesus is born every moment. Yeah. Yeah. Or can and, be if we have the eyes to see. And returns every moment. Yeah, that's right. And is <laughs> always, yeah, it's always returning. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your comment about the, the, the millions of, of universes. Yeah. Reminds me of how I got in trouble in my, like, it was the first class, uh, New Testament theology in seminary. And the professor was, uh, lecturing about the ascension and Jesus lifting off. And I'm not a math whiz by any stretch of the imagination, but I quickly calculated, I think it's like, what is it over 17,000 miles you has to, you have to, per hour, you have to be going before you can escape earth's gravity. And so I was estimating the speed of Jesus, uh, his elevation, because he was still this physical presence. So he had to obey the laws of gravity uh, and speed. And then at that point, if that happened, you know, 2000 years ago, roughly, how far through the solar system was he? And I asked the teacher, I said, if, if this is actually the way we need to be thinking about this, has Jesus gotten past Pluto yet? <laughs> and it's like, I wasn't joking, but I was trying yeah. to say, here's, here's how we see if we think about these things, literally. Yeah. What kind of response did you get? I got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, no, I'm trying to be serious here. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Yeah, we never got along after that. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately, uh, the professor was only a only an adjunct. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't there much longer. You know, we adjuncts are expendable. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Yeah, you gotta gotta get rid of you before you get that tenure. So that's right. <laughs> Uh, no, I want to, Oh, okay. Go. Well, go I wanted to ask Tom, like when you go to take pictures, do you, how are you thinking about them beforehand? Like when you see that you're like, yeah, oh, I, did you have any of these thoughts or was it just like, that's a cool picture. Let's take it. And now here comes the thoughts. Do you frame things 
uh, beforehand theologically or? Um, it, it depends on the situation. In that particular situation, I was just, I walked into that house and saw it. I just thought, oh, this is golden. I mean, this has got symbolism just oozing out of it. Um, this is a wonderful opportunity. And then kind of my, after I thought that my next thought was now how as an artist, can I make a photograph that I think will depict some of my feelings, but also uh, be aesthetically pleasing? How am I going to compose? I don't know if you've seen the photograph, but not everybody else has seen it. Um, I made a decision to compose the outside rocks in the window of the frame in a particular mm -hmm. way and particular angle. And I made quite a few different photographs of it. Um, but then what oftentimes happens is after I'm done and I'm come home and I'm fiddling with things and, you know, I'm deciding how I'm going to make it look. And I mean, I end up going black and white with that particular one. Cause I think that kind of fits with a, a, an old timey kind of look. Then I, I sometimes have additional theological insights that I, I didn't have in the moment when I was making the photograph. So um, I don't, I don't take the view that theology is only happens in one place. <laughs> I think it's an ongoing thing and we can learn, uh, we can imagine theological um, meaning at any point uh, along the trajectory trajectory. Mm. You know, I, I, this is a, I, in some ways it would be fun to have you back on next week. So I think next week we're talking with a photojournalist for the New York times. Cool. And one of the questions I was asking him was, what is truth in a post-truth age? If a picture is worth a thousand words, I mean, what, what, is, what does an image communicate? It's, it's, I can see it as art, which then it becomes in the eye of the beholder. So many things just open up. Whereas also there's, there's also just, it, it is just what it is. It's an old beat up house with a piano and some rocks outside. Yeah, it's very um, rarely that for people. Uh, almost everybody makes an interpretive move, but they don't all have the same interpretation. And that interpretation changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, and even there's a lot that goes into my selection as the artist and telling you what image I'm going to have you look at. I could have given you a bunch of other different angles and then your interpretation would have varied. So with this photojournalist, I'm sure he or she has the same kinds of issues that they're dealing with. Yeah. What images I choose tell a particular story. Yeah. Mm, 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 mm. I know. So do you feel like being, I mean, so you, you are a, a theologian philosopher who's not just a, you're not just a theologian of speculative biblical theology. You're also a, the, a philosopher of science. I mean, you really embrace science, understand uh, what it's communicating and, and deal with it at some you know, deeper levels, which can some ways seem rather, what's the word I'm looking for, but just rather separated from the aesthetics of, of art and, and art seems more open-ended, uh, more interpretive and subjective. Those, those two things seem like almost other worlds in some ways. Yeah, there's a lot more overlap than, than you might think. And one of the things that helps me to see that overlap is to recognize that that science isn't nearly as objective as what people want to think it is. 
Um, there's a lots of subjective interpretive moves, decisions scientists make and when, when they decide what they want to study, how they want to set up experiments. And the more abstract the science, let's say cosmology, the more uh, interpretive speculation is involved. Um, likewise, art has some, um, it has some parameters and, and uh, involved as well. It's not just purely whatever I come up with my, in my mind. There are factors, features, there are uh, aspects of any particular medium that constrain what an artist can do. And so um, I don't see them, I, I can totally get your question. I think that's the way most people see right. science and right. art, but I see them as much more overlapping. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and they, there, there is this, there's historic overlapping. You know, Einstein was a great uh, violinist. Uh, mm -hmm. Mozart was a wonderful mathematician. Da Vinci. Uh, Da Vinci, uh, he wasn't a great artist. Yeah. <laughs> Second <laughs> yeah. rate. Yeah, there are all these places where they actually feed one another, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and those, those, there's so many cases of that. Yeah. And as a person who is kind of a metaphysician at heart, and by metaphysics, I mean someone who tries to make sense of all of reality, that means I have to try to take in as much of reality as I can in all of its various dimensions. And I can't compartmentalize, or at least I don't compartmentalize things. And so for me, art, theology, science, philosophy, these things, if they're going to be, make them help us make the most sense out of life, we have to bring them all to the table. And that of course gets messy and it's not, right. you know, precise, but I think it's more robust in the end. I like it. So what, I, one of the other questions we had, I, I, I don't like throwing in segues because there's so many <laughs> great things to talk about. But one of the things that uh, wanted to talk about is um, the school, the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Uh, Cody is your student. So he must have thought it was really good. So he signed up and said, yeah, I want to do this. <laughs> yeah. uh, you must have thought it was really good because you signed up to start it and get it going and rolling with it. What's it about? Uh, who's it for? What, what, just kind of give a sales pitch, but also what do you, what, what do you seek to, um, to provide or offer? Out yeah. Of that? So there are really two different entities involved here. One is Northwind Theological Seminary. That's right. Right. And that uh, particular seminary is the, the one that uh, I'm a professor and direct a doctoral program in open relational theology. And that that's the one I was meaning. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. got my language. Well, it's, it's, it's understandable because the program is actually co-sponsored by both Northwind and the Center for Open Relational Theology. So um, let me finish with Northwind and then let me talk <laughs> about the center sure. second. Um so the Northwind degree is a degree, a doctoral degree, studying all kinds of implications for open and relational thinking. And um, students come in with a master's degree and they have particular ideas that they might want to pursue uh, related to open and relational theology. And that goes all different directions. And uh, we follow an Oxford style program, which means that students work directly with me and I give them readings and we talk about that and we move toward a culminating project. The Center for Open and Relational Theology, which co-sponsors that doctoral program, it's much more expansive and open to all kinds of people. Uh, it has uh, people, a part of it, who are uh, pastors, who are activists, who are artists, but also scholars, philosophers, teachers. 
and it goes in all kinds of different directions. Uh, some people in the in the center are more progressive, others are more conservative, but they share in common this idea that God is open and relational. You want me to talk a little bit about what I mean by those words? You know, that probably would have been a good place for us to start a while ago. Yeah, those, are, those, are, those are actually key terms. Yeah. Do. Yeah. So the relational word uh, is the idea that God is not only giving and uh, affecting us, but we are affecting God. There's this real give and receive relationship between us, creation, and God. Um, that means that what we do makes a difference to God. It affects God's emotions and what God plans to do, et cetera. And that's, I think, in most, amongst most Christians, that's a pretty, like, not a novel idea. Like, it's, okay, duh. Yeah, it's throughout the Bible story. <laughs> yeah. And then I tell them that the majority of major Christian theologians in Christian history have rejected that view. They've thought that God is, to use the technical language, impassable. It means unaffected by what happens in the world. God has... Immovable no, mover? Or, uh, yeah, unmoved mover. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, that surprises people. But open relational theology reclaims the idea that God is really interacting with creation and affected by us. The open part is a little more novel. It says that the future is open and not yet settled, not yet determined. In fact, not even known with absolute certainty by God, that God experiences time like we do, moving into an open future. And this helps us make sense of all kinds of interactive language about God interacting with us, about a God who forgives, who has a change of mind, a God who uh, is involved in giving and take and receiving relationship. Uh, but the, the notion that God is experiencing time like we do, that's again something that's not common in the Christian tradition. A lot of Christians have thought that God sort of sits outside of time and right. sees all history at all at once. The I remember running into that years ago. I guess in in seminary, perhaps is when we first started. When I first started looking at process theology, and it was a definition of knowledge that was pretty simple. The idea of knowledge is that which can be known, and since future things have not yet happened, they are not therefore knowable. Therefore, God cannot know the future because those are those are terms that don't go together. Knowing and future. If, if it hasn't happened, it can't be known. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of way that an open theist is gonna is gonna talk. They're gonna say God knows everything that's knowable. God's omniscient, to use the classic language. It's just that the future is not yet something that, to be known by anyone because it's not yet actual. It's it's some people say it's a realm of possibilities, not actualities. So do you see that, you know, through the, through the school, through teaching, through preparing these students as something that can go into like the local parish, can be part of congregational work, pastoral work? I see it in, uh, to me, it seems obvious in teaching, you know, and then I also think, what does it do for bishops and judicatory leaders and superintendents and managing or the bureaucracy of churches? Does it help yeah. there too, you know, how does it play out? Oh, man, I mean, we could have five interviews on how all the way it plays out. But let, yeah. let me just pick out one general thing that I think um, can affect all levels of church life. It's the idea that if the future is open, not yet determined, 
if God is affected by us, God's relational, our choices moment by moment actually count, actually make a difference. Our lives have true significance. See, if the, the future has already been settled, then what we do doesn't really affect the future. It, our choices don't really matter ultimately. Uh, but in an open and relational vision, the way we decide moment by moment how we're going to interact with our environment, our families, our, our own bodies, uh, God, that actually makes a difference in what could happen in the next moment. And so open and relational theology presents a vision of reality that says you matter. You matter not just in your little place. You matter to God. Right. You matter ultimately. And um, that has implications that are so wide ranging that we could talk for, for a long time about it. It's a way of uh, expressing the butterfly effect. Yes. Every, yeah. every single action choice makes a difference. That can also become incredibly oppressive. It can. It means that we're responsible for our actions. Now, when, when I say that to audiences uh, in a public forum, uh, back when I did that before the pandemic hit. <laughs> public forum? What's that? <laughs> um, you know, I could see some people listening to me. They would say, hear me say, you know, your choices make a difference to God. Like their shoulders would go back and they'd be like, yeah. Now, here's the theology that actually fits the way my life works. My life matters. But there were some whose shoulders kind of slumped. And they're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. This sucks. What I do matters. Um, and I like to say to those people, look, the whole world isn't on your shoulders. But it is the case that God has called you to do things moment by moment. Your choices really matter. And um, so... It may seem like a burden in one sense, but God is present with you, not only calling you, but I think also empowering you to do what's the good, the loving, yeah. the beautiful, the pure, et cetera, in every moment. You're not alone in this. No, no. Not only are you not alone because God is with you, but you also hopefully are part of a community. And that's one of the importance of uh, churches. In some ways, that's a very liberating and in both ways, liberating in that my, my life matters. Yep. Uh, my choices matter. They're, they don't have to be imposed upon me. My, my viewpoint matters. And if I have to carry a burden, I don't carry it alone. Yes. Yep. And so it's liberating in both senses. And I do know it, it for myself. Sometimes it feels the weight of a decision is so impactful. I worry about the consequences it has to others or the future or, you know, whatever. Um, and I and I tend sometimes to worry too much. It's part of just my ang anxious nature. I one time had a, a colleague say that I'm like an airplane. I always I'm always circling the field, but I never land <laughs> because that 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 the burden of making that decision uh, can yeah. be so so hard. But to think that I'm not making it alone is really mm. crucial. Yeah, and just maybe just reflect and look at reality. Oh yeah, I really am not making it on my own. I'm not alone here. Yeah, and you're, you're circling the, the airplane, circling the field, I think also points to the uh, importance of the openness and the reality of time. You know, um, you, that airplane can't circle forever. <laughs> yeah. There's, time is moving on. And even the decision to keep the airplane in the air is a decision. And so um, 
part of understanding the reality of time is to say that we make choices one way or the other moment by moment. So if that's inevitable, right. then the question is, okay, what are the best choices we can yeah. make? Yeah, because in that scenario, there's two bad choices. One is I can land right now at an inappropriate time, or I could keep flying until I run out of fuel and crash <laughs> and land that way. Right. One way or the other, gravity you're, wins. You're going down do, one way or another. <laughs> I should like at least participate at least do it in a way that I can participate in the future. Yeah. <laughs> that won't do damage to other people, right? Because exactly, where, yeah. where are you going to land? And also that you don't get damaged. That's right. That's right. You know, I'm trying to learn uh, to say I'm happy that I'm getting older. <laughs> I'm realizing that the alternative is that I'd be dead because everybody gets older. And, um, and that's kind of another way to say, you know, time marches on it's better to face that and live with it and try to make the best of things than it is to either die or pretend that time can you know stand still or something like that yeah that's a bit uh, yeah i like it okay so talking about uh time and how we spend our time and choose to spend our time uh i gotta go pretty soon and <laughs> so do I, <laughs> but we have, uh, we have five questions we want to ask you about okay. some things you're doing to spend your time right now. So, okay. Uh, these are our, we probably asked you this the last time you were on. I think we, we I'm asked sure. everybody. Who did that time on what? Four times? I yeah, think that's right. the fourth. I'm sure I've forgotten them. Nah, that's all right. Because it actually, they're designed to change because they're in okay, the moment. Good, so good. the first question is, what are you drinking? So what's your, like, what right now is your go? Yeah, it can be what you're drinking right now. Here you go. This was some uh, green tea. Ah, is that your goat? Is that a go-to drink? It has been the last week since I've been ill. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right. What are you reading? So it can be an actual book you're reading right now or like a blog or essays you're reading or want us to check out articles, et cetera. The book next to my bed is by Jordan Wessling. It's an analytic theology book on divine love. Mm, oh, I think you showed a picture of it on uh, Facebook, didn't you? Oh, I did. Yes, I yeah, did. Okay. You just got it. Okay. Uh, and uh, let's see. What, do you, da, 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 what are you listening to? So it can be new music you're listening to, old music that you really want to listen to, a podcast. It can be any of those. Or an audio book, even. So... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was over at my in-laws house and my father-in-law pulled out from the cupboard a cup from 1988 concert by Petra at Northwest Nazarene College. <laughs> I could not believe he had this thing after 32 years. So I posted that on Facebook and I got all kinds of comments. And yesterday I thought, you know, I think I'm going to listen to some old Petra. And so I was on on uh, YouTube kind of looking at videos and listening to stuff. And, um, you know, I'm not as impressed with Petra now as I was. <laughs> didn't, didn't age well, huh? <laughs> no, well. they didn't age all that well. Uh, but that's yeah. what, to be honest, that's what I've listened to lately. That's interesting. Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Somebody mentioned on that uh, thread Striper too. So yes, I was a bigger Striper fan that year than I was Petra. Uh, oh yeah, I remember seeing I remember seeing Striper go by on that. It's like oh cringe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I took a girlfriend of mine to a Portland concert of Striper, and I and she was pretty you know, conservative girl, but she went to this Striper concert with me and I, I never forget walking in and there was this guy standing on a chair who had, uh, 
pants on that just had a little thin thread down his butt crack and then he had wide open cheeks on both sides and she looked at that and she was like what have i gotten myself into Cody's way too young to know this stuff tom you may it may click with you that's when i started listening to mark hurd Oh, I know Mark um, Hurd. Yeah. Well, he uh, actually predates St- Striper. Daniel Amos. Oh, DA. Daniel Amos is one of my all-time favorites. Rez, Resurrection Band, Res yep. Band, Res. Yeah, all uh, those people like, okay, predate I gotta Striper. Go with Striper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. All right. Now, uh, what are you watching? Is there a, a series on Netflix or Hulu you're binging or uh, old uh, videos on YouTube or a YouTube channel you want to recommend or anything like that? So I don't watch all that much TV. Um, I try to do other things, but since I've been sick, I binged the Queen's Gambit and yeah. loved oh, it. Absolutely so loved it. Yeah. So just, good. What a great ending. No yeah. spoilers, but just a great ending. Yeah. So and great acting throughout. Was, so good. And Top nice nine. pacing. I mean, maybe only once or twice during the whole, what is there, nine, nine episodes? something like that uh, only once or twice did I think, okay, this might be getting a little bit, you know, we really didn't need this part. The vast yeah. majority, it was like tightly done, put together really well. So it, was, it was really good. And can uh, I, uh, yeah. can yeah, I give you a second one? I also just watched my octopus teacher, which is oh, a documentary yeah. on Netflix of a guy who spends time with an octopus uh, diving down and learning. It's really fascinating. If you're, if you're a nature person like me, you'll love my octopus teacher. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds great. I'm going to go put that on, I think. And the, uh, last question is in our series of five, if Craig and I show up in, uh, in, in, at your doorstep, where are you going to take us for dinner? Man, during COVID, <laughs> <laughs> pretend, pretend there's no pretend there's no the pandemic. Best DoorDash, Grubhub, whatever. No, yeah. no pandemic, no pandemic. Okay. You know, I'd probably take you one of the Thai restaurants here in town. I've kind of become mm. a Thai food fan mm. in the last few years, so probably Thai food. Awesome, very good. What's, good. A, what's your favorite uh, Thai place close close at hand there? You know, um, I go to one it's just called uh, 12th Street Thai Food. It doesn't have a really fancy name. Uh, Thai Express the or something like that. <laughs> yeah, those are the best. They're like, we don't have to, we're putting all our creative energy into our food. We don't have time yeah. for the. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's it. That's our series of five. There you hey, go. Thanks, thanks for this conversation. I really, you guys take things all different directions and that <laughs> suits me perfectly. That's good. That's good. We appreciate you, Tom. I appreciate you guys. All right. All right. Well, that's it. And we'll wrap this up and I will stop recording somewhere along. Where's that button? <laughs> there we go. And done. Thanks for joining Cody Stoffer and me, Craig Morton, for this podcast. We simply try to record and upload without much editing. What you get is live conversation with all its ignorance and insight, wisdom and foolishness, sometimes more of one than the other, and occasionally profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. Make sure to follow us on Facebook at the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment. And look for upcoming Facebook Live podcasts where you can interact with our guests. Also, we can be found on Twitter as 
at All That's Holy. Our intro and outro music is by At The Speed Of Darkness. Support At The Speed Of Darkness on Bandcamp and buy his music there, as well as follow him on Instagram at At The Speed Of Darkness.